Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. During this uh, Christmas season, we have been considering the birth of the babe of Bethlehem. And our study is called a birth announcement, and what we have been doing is looking at the coming of Christ or the significance of Christ through items that you would find on any common birth announcement. For instance, we began with the name. His name is Jesus, or as we saw, Joshua, where Jesus was compared to the Old Testament Joshua's, the two great men of, of the Old Testament. And we see that in Christ, Jesus accomplished what the other two Joshua's could not. While Joshua means Jehovah saves, neither of them could actually save anyone. But Jesus was born, and he has saved his people from our sins. And then last week, we considered his size. If you weren't here, we didn't presume to know anything about his physical stature in life or at birth. Uh, but with a few liberties taken here, we did recognize there is something of a size that has been revealed in Scripture, and that is the size of his heart or the size of his love. And it's the Apostle Paul's prayer for all believers that we would continually be growing in our understanding of the height and the depth and the length and the width of God's love for us as he's given to us in Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to yet another item that is found in any typical birth announcement, and that is the time of the birth. And for that reason, I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, where our reading this morning will be uh, Galatians 4, 4 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May the Lord bless us with understanding of this, his promise and revelation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to honor you, to worship you, to give ourselves to you, we sing not only praises that recognize who you are, but we give our ears and our hearts to you as well. For as we consider this word that you have revealed to us, the word that you have said never comes back empty, always produces, always is at work. Lord, we pray that as we give ourselves to you during this time, that you would be at work through this word. In this way, Lord, we offer ourselves fully, not only to go through motions, but for the shaping of our very lives. Lord, make us more like Jesus in accordance with your promise for your glory and the joy that we find when we walk in line with your way. We pray all of this in Jesus. Amen. Whether you recognize it or not, you have... Just 10 more days to shop for Christmas. Just curious, how many of you have finished your Christmas shopping? Okay, well, I will see many of you in stores. How many of you have yet to start your Christmas shopping? 
I'll see you in the stores too. Now, seriously, one question that I was curious about is this, is in your homes, how many of you make it a practice to wait until Christmas morning before anyone is able to open any gifts? Not most, most open at some other time. Well, this is, if you were to ask my children, one of the curious things of our family is that I insist that we wait till Christmas morning. Now, occasionally, Carolyn sneaks and gives permission, and I find things unwrapped and unopened that I didn't know about, but uh, that's all right. Carolyn is simply exercising the rationale that our children recognize that is logical, is, is illogical in my insisting that we wait until Christmas. Because patience doesn't come naturally for me in anything. I find myself always between the overeager and the procrastination and never hitting that sweet spot. And the only time that patience I insist on anything, it happens to be on Christmas morning, that we don't open the gifts until Christmas morning. My children see that as inconsistency. I see that as trying to build traditions. But that's, that's, that's just as a constant reminder during this time when I'm insisting that we just honor that tradition and we wait those who know me best realize that I'm insisting on something that I very rarely follow or follow well myself. And I suspect that I'm probably not alone in that. Now, the thing that's amazing to me is, as we consider our God in this Christmas season, is that our God is the essence of patience. What I mean by that is that he works out all things according to his plans. He develops all things and he delivers at just the right time. And all things that he's doing. And not least of which is in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world in order to bear in him the guilt and the punishment of our sin in order to set us free. So what Paul is saying here in this letter. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The promise of God and the coming of Christ was delivered in the fullness of time, meaning at just the right time or at the perfect time. Now, some wonder, when exactly was that time? And the only honest answer that we can give you is, we really don't know. Now, we know that the first Christmas celebrations on recorded history took place in 86 AD, and then there seems to be a gap. It didn't become celebrated in any part of the world uh, on any regularity until about 40 years after that, and even then it was only a small portion, and there's not enough detail for us to gain any kind of consistency to know exactly when uh, it was to be celebrated. And so consequently, there's a lot of debate as to when Christmas ought to be recognized. Now, if you grew up in an evangelical tradition, and I didn't grow up in one, but was uh, discipled as I became a believer in my college years, you probably have been told that it's a spring date. And the reason for that is if the shepherds were out in the field, they were out in the open, the sheep were out in the open, it had to have been sometime in the spring. And so therefore, while it's okay that we celebrate Christmas in December, it was probably, it's probably not the right date. It must be sometime in the spring. Other parts of the church, particularly in the Eastern Church, they recognize a January date, not only recognizing but celebrate and observing Christmas to this day to be early in January. And of course, we and the majority of the world traditionally celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December. There are even people in the debate that think that everybody is wrong because we shouldn't recognize and celebrate the date, uh, the, 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 the date of birth of Christ at all. 
And their idea, in many cases, is not just to be in conformity with the instructions that Paul has in the Galatians to, to not get all caught up in different days and celebrations, but they're convinced that to celebrate Christmas is simply to cater or to try to Christianize an ancient pagan holiday and then simply put on Christian clothing and then go through the pagan rituals. Now, historically speaking, there was a pagan holiday that takes place about this time of the year. It's a Roman holiday known as Saturnalia. It takes took place every year between December 17th and December 24th. It was a celebration of Saturn. And during that week-long celebration that was established as, uh, as the days reach their low point, the, the, the longest days of the year, and then in the middle of the week it changes on the 21st, the 22nd, and days begin to get longer. It was a celebration of the coming of light and the coming of spring, so even on the first day of the winter solstice, they're already looking ahead until spring, not unlike those of you who have been cold recently and wanting to uh, find the warmth. But they were looking ahead and they were celebrating that, and as part of the celebration, all the schools would be closed, and government offices, and people would party, and they would exchange gifts. A lot of things that we recognize in our own practices of Christianity for the celebration of Christmas. And consequently, so a number of people look at that pattern and say, the practices we have at Christmas are no more than just dressed up Christianized paganism. And consequently, they believe that we shouldn't recognize Christmas at all. Now, I suspect that there probably is some truth that Saturnalia does have some influence on our practices. But I don't think that it necessarily follows that just because there are some similarities of practice that Christmas is a revision of Saturnalia. In fact, I think it's quite possible that Saturnalia was simply a preemptive counterfeit of Christmas. That in the spiritual world, as people were influenced, and the time, desire for a celebration, the prophecies that the Christ would be born that a celebration was already established and that it really doesn't matter what they did. The only question is whether or not we ought to celebrate Christmas. And I'm convinced that we ought to because it's God's gift to us of the incarnation through whom all the promises of birth. And when was Christ born? While we can't be certain, nevertheless, there seems to be some evidence that maybe the traditional date is okay. In the late 19th century, a historian named Alfred Edersheim wrote The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which has become somewhat of the, the, the standard for studying the life of Christ. And in one of the appendices there, he makes a case for the possibility, even the likelihood, that Christ was born in late December. Let me share some of his reasoning here. Historically, he says that we know that in, AD, in August 5th, A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by a Roman general named Titus. And at that time, Jewish records show, and then Josephus, the historian, also confirms that a group of priests called Jehoiarib, they were serving in the temple. Just a little bit of background, if you look into your Old Testament history, you'll see that David divided the priesthood, the whole order of priests, into 24 divisions, which were also at times called courses. And each course, each division would serve for about two weeks in the temple when, it, when their time was up. And it was the Jehoiarib that was serving in the temple at the time that the temple was destroyed. So now that we have that background, what Edersheim does is he then traces back historically from what we know and to the prophecies. 
And he says that if you trace back through time the service of the various divisions, when you come to the time of October, a year prior to when Christ was likely to have been born, you find that there was a division of Abijah that was serving in the temple in early October. Now, for those of you that are not asleep already, there is something that comes with this. So here's the question that we need to ask with historical background behind us. Now we have, who cares, the division of Abijah, you know, uh, was there. So here's the question we ask. Is there anybody that we would know or recognize or have heard of from that would have made that significant? Well, we're not going to turn there if you want to make note, but you can look in Luke chapter 1, and you find that there was a certain godly priest named Zechariah who was part of the division or the course of Abijah. Zechariah had a wife named Elizabeth. Despite their advanced age, they had no children. But while Zechariah was serving his term in the temple at that point, the Lord appeared to him and made a promise and said, you and your wife are going to have a child. Zechariah laughed. And as a consequence and as a sign, the Lord struck him dumb for the duration of the pregnancy. In other words, to laugh at God apparently is not a good idea. On the other hand, the silence that was removed at the time of the birth left no doubt that this was not a stroke, but this was God who was at work providentially to strike him dumb and, remove, and, and also to allow him to give praises at the time that the promise had been fulfilled. Most of you know the story. Elizabeth, despite her old age, she did conceive and she did give birth to a son who was known as John the Baptist. Now, Luke also tells us that John the Baptist was six months older than his cousin named Jesus. And so now we move from the history to the mathematic department. If you were to start in October and add nine months and then add six months, you would find yourself a year later in late December, making December the 25th or sometime in late December a very possible very logical and potentially even a very biblical date to celebrate Christmas. Now we can all go home, right? Actually, it doesn't even matter. I just thought that was interesting. That's just something that you might want to be thinking about. And for those of you who love the Christmas or the, uh, the decorations of Christmas and dressing up in sweaters, we don't want to do that in May. I mean, so you now have biblical and historical reason to believe in the birth of Christ. But we don't really know the actual date or even the season of when Christ was born, no matter how much rationale there is. But what we do know, and we can be dogmatic about, we know for certainty, we can be bold in our confidence, is that Jesus was born at just the right time. That's what, is, that's what Paul says here. When the time had fully, fully come, or when the fullness of time had come, God sent into the world his son to those who were born under the law, under the curse of the law, in order that we might be set free from the law to live for him. It was just the right time, is what the passage is telling us. It was just the right time. It was just the right time politically. For the first time in the, the known world, or the known history, the known world was unified. It was an era known as the Pax, Pax Romana, from B.C. 27 to A.D. 180, about 200 years of unprecedented peace. Now, how did this peace come about? Well, the Romans had basically bludgeoned everybody else into submission, and nobody would dare attack them. So whatever the Romans said, people did. Everything was, was shaped by the dictates of Rome. 
the Romans made sure that nobody opposed them. And for the first time, there were no wars being waged anywhere. Now, if you had a message that needed to be passed to all other people groups, this was a perfect time. Because for the first time in history, the message could go out freely throughout the world without fear that it would be hindered by warring parties. And so it was just the right time politically. It was just the right time commercially. Because during the Pax Romana, something, the Romans attempted, or did something that never was attempted before. In order to expand their territory and to make commerce between different lands easier, they designed and they developed a system of roads. The roads were developed in such a way and so well developed that many of those roads continue to be used today in North Africa, in the Middle East, and in, in parts of, of Europe. The Romans were advanced and, and created an opportunity for people to connect. Now, if you had a message that needed to get out and to be spread, not only is it politically the appropriate time because now you could go without fear of war, but it was possible because there's a now a road system that people can take not only their goods, but they can take their messages to every part of the known world. It was just the right time linguistically. Because ever since the Tower of Babel, nations had been divided by a collage of languages. People just didn't understand one another. But all that changed when a young and amazingly capable ruler named Alexander the Great began to reign. As part of his rule, one of the things he insisted upon was that every nation that was under Roman influence, which was everyone in that part of the world, would begin speaking a common language, Koine Greek, which was what Alexander spoke. And Koine Greek is the most exacting in the most precise and the most detailed language that has been designed by man. And since everyone was expected to speak that, or at least be familiar with the language, it was the perfect time. Because if you had a message that needed to go out to a wide range of people, Greek was the perfect language in order to do that. One, everybody understood it. And two, because of its precision, communicating not only the message, but details and significances of promises that are encapsulated in the giving of Christ would be easily, more easily communicated and we would have greater understanding. It was the perfect time linguistically. It was the perfect time philosophically. For centuries, the Greeks and the Romans had worshiped the mythical gods like Zeus and Apollo. And yet the people had grown somewhat restless. You studied literature, you recognize and probably remember some of the stories of these gods. And it seems to degenerate simply in them entertaining themselves by turning themselves into swans or other kinds of animals or engaging in wars with one another, seducing um, uh, humans and fathering children and then going and becoming absentee fathers and whatever. The people at this time, while they continued to pay homage, they also began to grow restless because they started recognizing just the silliness of these gods that they were honoring and that they offered them no hope. They offered them nothing. They just were there for entertainment purposes and perhaps to give some explanation of the difficulties that we have in this life. 
So people were growing tired of the silliness of, of their hope, which made it just the right time for a message of substance, of reality, of veracity, of depth, of hope to be delivered to a people that were hungering, starving for hope to come from God. And it was just the right time spiritually as well. Because God had been silent for 400 years. It had been 400 years since he had spoken through any of his prophets. He seemed to be amazingly silent. People had their tradition, people had the word, but God just didn't seem to be speaking in the way that he had in the past. Why? I'm not sure that the scripture speaks specifically to it, but I, I suspect that it may be because when you really want to be heard, sometimes it's best to whisper. Many of you are old enough to remember the old E.F. Hutton commercials. Some of you wonder who in the world is E.F. Hutton. But those of you who are old enough to remember them, when the guy would begin to whisper, everybody kind of leaned in because they wanted to hear what was being said, but it wasn't being said loud enough to be processed in normal conversation. Well, against the backdrop of 400 years of silence, people were hungering to hear a word from God, to know that God was still there, that God still cared, that God was at work. And so now God is speaking for the first time. Something new is happening. And so when John the Baptist comes onto the scene and proclaims, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, people stood up and took notice. Subsequently, when Jesus came and began to teach and saying, the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is like, people marveled and said, no one has ever spoken like this. It was the perfect time. It was the perfect time, politically perfect time, commercially perfect time, linguistically perfect time, philosophically, religiously perfect time, spiritually. And that's not all incidental. It's not like God was just waiting for an opportunity at some point to have all the stars align in the right way and say, okay, now we can go. But it's an evidence of God as all through the scriptures testifying that he's in control of all things and he is working out his plan according to his purpose for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And God, from the beginning, through his prophecy, saying, this is what's going to take place. Not only that you would know, but this is what I'm doing. And when all these things came together and it became the fullness of time, the perfect time, when all of God's provisions, providence, were working together in order for him to send his son at the time that he had determined, it was then, at the fullness of time, that God sent his son into the world to redeem those who were under the law that we might become his sons, children of God. Now we could go on and on and talk about all the prophecies and how they all worked out and how God was working all of them because it almost seems limitless the number of things that God was orchestrating as he was sending his son to us. But what's most important as we come is to ask this question. What does God's timing say to us during this Christmas season? If you're like me, one of the questions that I find myself regularly asking is this, Lord, can I trust you? Can I trust you with that problem that I'm wrestling with? Can I trust you to deliver me from this difficulty? In, in short, Lord, can, can I trust you? 
But when I consider the Christmas story in light of both biblical and historical evidence, I have to marvel at it. And I have to realize and say both to the Lord and to myself, I can trust you, Lord. Because what the story tells me is that at just the right time or at the right time, when the time fully comes, God will resolve my problem, my dilemma. At just the right time, God will deliver just as he delivered his son. The Christmas story itself, when we look at the specificity, at the fullness of time, that even though we didn't know what the time was, and we even don't know when the time was as we look back, we know that it was the right time, the fullness of time, and that screams to us, we can trust God. But at the same time, I want to ask you this morning, what would you have done if you had been God? I mean, let's be honest, most of you want the job sometime or another because you know exactly how everything ought to work. See, I recognize that whenever you agree with me, then we all know how the world is supposed to work and things would just go well. But would you have waited until the fullness of time? Or would you have been more likely to say at some point prematurely, this can't wait? And think about history. Let's go back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve had blown it in the garden, they took perfection and they vandalized it and they messed everything up. I mean, it seems like that would have been an appropriate time to have stepped in and done something, wouldn't it? The Barney Fife in me says, nip it in the bud, you know, don't, before it spreads any further, let's fix this thing. Send the deliverer then. But God didn't step in. He gave promise of a time that would come. About during the days of Noah, when the people lived in such rebellion that the Lord couldn't take it anymore. And he said, essentially, I'm going to start over, but I'm not going to start over. The people were rebelling against God. They were living in ways that were reprehensible to God. I mean, it seemed like if I had the job, that would have been an appropriate time to be sending Jesus, send Jesus down, let him deal with the people, let him realize, uh, uh, kind of reveal and reason with the people. But God didn't send Jesus at that time either. But God was still at work making out his plan because he was going to call a people to himself, the next generation, with Abraham. Made a promise to Abraham that you, through you, I will bless the entire nations. I'm going to make a nation out of you, and you'll be blessed, and through you I'll bless the entire nations, and I'm going to give you a land. And then... Generations later, as the people of Abraham, who had rebelled consistently against God, who were living and occupying the land that God had promised, had provided for them everything that they had said, and they still took God for granted or couldn't care less, and now, as a consequence, they're being hauled off into captivity in Babylon. I mean, seemingly, that would be a good time to work, right? I mean, you've already fulfilled a lot of what you were going to do. It just seems like the time to work. I think about all the instances throughout history and say, I, I don't think I would have waited. 
because my tendency is to be over-anxious and impulsive, and recognizing that that's not necessarily wise, it leads to procrastination. So again, hitting that sweet spot of just the right time, not only is it not my nature, but it's very difficult because I'm not always sure when the right time is. But there was a right time. There was a right time redemptively. There was a right time in preparation. There was a right time that God understood. There was a point in which God had finally put all the pieces together the way that he wanted to, and then he says, now. Now I send my son. And he sent Christ into the world in order to redeem us and to bless us. And when I think about that, and then I think about many of our lives, and mine certainly included, it just reminds me that many of the errors that we experience in this life, many of the consequences we find are because of the errors we make. And we make errors in one of two ways. One is we just disobey when God tells us to do something. And while that is a significant truth, we're not going to be dealing with that one today. We have plenty of time to deal with that one. But there's another one that doesn't get talked about much at all. Many of our problems also come not just because we've disobeyed, but because in one sense we disobey passively, we disobey in another way. We don't wait even when God has told us to wait. Think about historically this way with Abraham, and we become a lot like Abraham. Abraham was given a promise, the promise that he would be the blessing of the nation. And how was that promise to come? Because he and his elderly wife would also have a child. Twelve years came and went. Abraham one day must have said to Sarah, um, God's made a promise. We believe that God has made a promise. Are we missing something here? How are we going to make this promise true? How's God going to deliver on this promise? And Sarah said, well, how about this? Take my maid. It's culturally acceptable. Legally, any child you have with my maid is ours. Solves the problem. She's young. And so Abraham thought that was a good idea. Took, his, took her maid, Hagar. Had a child, had a son. And then later the Lord delivers on his promise and he and Sarah had another son. So now... Abraham had a promise, had a problem. He had two sons, which isn't necessarily a problem, but it was in this case because they were at war with one another. And Abraham's problem is can still our problem because if you pick up a newspaper or turn on the news, we recognize that they, those children, those sons, and the sons of those sons are continuing to be at war. And much of the conflict in the war is because Abraham, though given a problem, decided I need to take matters into my own hands. And rather than waiting on God to deliver in a way that he couldn't understand, he took action and he stepped out. Good reason, but still wrong. Devastating. Or maybe like Saul, who had been given the kingdom, was reigning relatively effectively, ready to go into battle, and was told by the prophet, I got something to do, I'll be back. Don't go to battle until I return. Seven days came and went. And the enemy was getting more itchy for the fight. 
Saul, recognizing that they weren't going to be able to put the fight off for very long, didn't want to go, and nobly didn't want to go into battle without the Lord's blessing. So he didn't want to go in without offering the sacrifice to God, acknowledging that they depended upon God. And so with the prophet not present, Saul, being the king, being the leader, saying, it's not necessarily what I want to do, but I know that I have a lose-lose situation here. So it's better to at least acknowledge God. And he offers a sacrifice, and as soon as the sacrifice was offered, here comes the prophet and said, what did you do? And he said, look, I didn't want to go into battle without God's blessing. I mean, that's something that we should commend in a way. But the prophet said, the Lord told you to wait. Because you didn't wait, because you took matters into your own hands, you forfeited the kingdom. And Saul lost everything. Story after story in the Bible shows us people unwilling to wait for God's timing, unwilling for them to willing to wait for the promise of God to come true in God's way. And each one experiences consequences. I believe this is pertinent for us. It's a message for some of us during this season. In the fullness of time, God gave birth to his promise. And so in the fullness of time, God will continue to give birth to his promise in your life as well. How will he do it? I have no idea. When will he do it? I have no idea. Except to know that in the fullness of time. And to know that evidence of the scriptures tell us over and over again, actually God's already working it out. Because in all these instances, little by little, God is preparing circumstances and preparing the people for whatever God has in store for them. And his promises are inseparably linked to his purposes. He doesn't bow down to ours. And the Christmas story screams to us, whatever it is we are facing, whether it's a health condition, relational brokenness, job or economic instability, that we cry out and we've been crying out, Lord, deliver us. And we know the promise that he will work out all things for us if we're called according to his purpose. And we wonder, when will you be at work? And the only answer we have, but the only answer we need is in his perfect time. We can believe and trust that the Lord will deliver. And little by little, he is working even now. Because he's not only preparing the circumstances, but he's preparing you and he's preparing me that we would be who he wants us to be. And our circumstances are part of that process. And so whenever we, this Christmas season, go to Bethlehem, and we see representation all around us of the birth of the baby born at the perfect time. Know that we have the same father who has made a promise, who is working it out, who is preparing a world and preparing a people for whatever situation we may face and to experience the relationship with him. This is our hope and promise of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do come with thanksgiving to you. You speaking to our very tendencies. 
Remind us that we are in need of wisdom that we do not possess. And as our culture and some of our natures are more impulsive and feel the need to step out, to take action, many times you call us to wait. And yet you do call us to be faithful. And waiting is the expression at times. So, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us and to remind us to be still and to know that you are God and you alone. And that in our stillness, as we see you at work and your promises unfold, not only will the nations know that you are God, but we'll be reminded as well. Father, prepare our hearts that we might delight in seeing you at work. Give us strength and focus to look to you in the midst of whatever it is that we are dealing with and cling to the promise of your love and of your deliverance, both of which fully reflected and fulfilled in the coming of Christ and will even more fully be revealed and experienced when he comes again. Father, bless us in this knowledge that not only may we know, but that we may feel the peace because of the birth of the Prince of Peace. It's in his name we pray.